This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Thank you very much, Dean Miles. Thank you all for being here. Um, you know, I'll never forget the when I first met Dean Miles. He was merely Professor Miles back in those days. He was a skeptic of behavioral law and economics, as most, as many really excellent economists were at that time, more than a decade ago. Um, you know, behavioral law and economics seemed sort of strange. There were all these odd findings that seemed to contradict basic uh, common sense, like the anchoring finding, one of the sort of staples of behavioral law and economics. If you tell somebody a number, they tend to anchor to that number even in circumstances under which it has no relevance. So if you tell people the temperature outside and then ask them to tell you how much they'd be willing to pay for something, the amount that they'd be willing to pay for it is much closer to the temperature than it would be if you hadn't mentioned the temperature in the first place. Um, Professor Miles and I discussed this back then. He came to my office. In those days, our teaching evaluations were on a scale of 1 to 7 rather than 1 to 5. Came to my office and told me that on the last day of his classes, he was going to try out having seven uh, bullet points on his outline for that day, (laughs) discussing seven topics, calling on seven students, and having seven key takeaways that everyone should walk away from the class with. And I said to him, you know, what are you doing with all this? I thought you didn't believe in this stuff. And he said, you know, just in case, it never hurts to try. I don't know if that was the year that Professor Miles won the teaching award, but (laughs) regardless, he's been uh, a great supporter of behavioral law and economics ever since. Okay, I want to start this lecture with three examples. First, I want you to imagine that you're injured in a car accident and you sue the other driver. After the case has gone on for a little while, the other side makes a settlement offer. How much are you willing to settle the case for? If you're a rational choice economist, the answer is that you're willing to settle if the settlement amount is greater than the amount you would receive in expectation if you litigated. But most people don't actually behave that way. Most people take into account other things, such as whether the settlement account seems fair. And I would like to pause and note, we're one minute into a law and economics lecture, and I've already used the word fair, so buckle up, everybody. (laughs) What seems fair depends, in turn, on how much you think you're owed. How much you think you're owed depends on how much you've been injured in the accident, what you think you're owed to compensate you for your injuries. That, in turn, depends on how severe those injuries are and how much they've impacted your life. So the question is, how do you judge how much your injuries have impacted your life? Second example. Suppose you're a state legislator and you've been tasked with the job of reforming the state's penal code. Your job is to decide what the appropriate punishments should be for various crimes. Let's suppose that you decide that the appropriate punishment for robbery is 10 years and that you believe that murder is twice as bad as robbery. How long should the sentence for murder be? Well, 20 is twice as much as 10, so maybe the sentence should be 20 years. But of course, not all days in prison are created equal. You'd rather spend a day locked in the penthouse at the Ritz than in federal penitentiary. If somebody told you that you were being sentenced to a year of living on a Caribbean resort, you might not really think of that as punishment in the same way. This tells us that punishment has to mean something more than just the fact that your liberty is being restricted behind bars. It has, to, it has to have something to do with your experience. The individual's experience, what it's like to be in prison, has to matter to some degree as well. So how do we go about figuring what it's like to be in prison? 
how do we know whether 20 years is actually twice as much or twice as bad as 10 years? Last example. Suppose you work for the EPA and you're trying to decide whether the, uh, your agency should issue a regulation that bans the use of asbestos in certain types of building materials. The regulation will save lives because asbestos can cause lung cancer if it's inhaled, but it doesn't come for free. It's going to raise prices for the companies that build those buildings, and it's going to force them to switch to more expensive materials, and those companies will then pass the higher prices along to consumers and residents. So how do you decide whether that trade-off is worth it? How, many, how do you decide how many dollars it's worth spending in order to save a life? And don't tell me that you can't put a dollar value on life or that we shouldn't be making these types of trade-offs because they're inhuman, because we make those types of trade-offs every single day. Okay. These three examples do not pose unanswerable questions. Lawyers and economists came up with answers to them decades ago because they had to. These are fundamental questions to the legal system. What I want to suggest is that the answers that we have now are not correct, or at least they're not nearly as accurate as they could be, given the methods that we have at our disposal today. So what are those methods? All of the questions posed by these examples involve how individuals experience their own lives and whether those experiences are positive or negative. How much has an individual been injured in an auto accident? How much punishment is five years or 10 years or 20 years in prison? These are questions that revolve around the issue of how the individual's life is going, how he or she is experiencing it. Psychologists have only recently begun to use a new methodology to figure out how a person's life is going. And when I tell you what it is, you're going to be amazed it took them this long. The methodology is pretty simple. Just ask the person. Just ask the person. All things considered, how is your life going for you? The answer that the person gives is a measure of that person's subjective well-being. How well that person's life is going according to that person himself or herself. A whole new branch of social psychology has sprung up around this question. This branch is called hedonic psychology. And because subjective well-being isn't very catchy, the term that's often used is happiness. So hedonic psychology is the study of what makes people happy or unhappy. Now, you might be a little skeptical that we can really learn anything useful from asking people how their lives are going. Are those answers really going to mean anything? So let me see if I can address that skepticism up front right now. First of all, what individuals say about their own happiness correlates very strongly with external measures that we might use to judge whether someone is happy or not. For instance, it correlates very strongly with how often a person genuinely smiles. Uh, and I mean a true genuine smile, not sort of where you're turning up the corners of your mouth to make it look as though you're smiling, but when your face is actually, your whole face is actually smiling. These genuine smiles are called Duchenne smiles after the French physician who studied them. And do, the number of Duchenne smiles actually correlates very strongly with how happy a person is. So I'll show you an example of a Duchenne smile. I was talking to one of our Bigelow fellows the other day who advised me that I should pick an example that is as culturally relevant as possible, something that all the students would appreciate. I am a law professor, so there are certain limits on that, so here's my attempt. Okay, so that's Joe Biden on the left side <laughs> modeling a Duchenne smile. Uh, and on the right, that's poor John Boehner uh, with a non-Duchenne smile plastered on his face. Mostly this picture just makes me feel sorry for John Boehner, who I, I think had to go through a lot of his life with that sort of look on his face. Uh, the, and the poor guy, and no one should. Okay. Happiness measures also correlate very strongly with how happy the individual's friends and family say they are. They're highly replicable. 
and reliable. You ask the same person the same question about the same thing in two different times, they're going to give you the same answer. The data repeat themselves, unlike a lot of psychology. So there are lots of reasons to trust that the measures that these people are giving us actually mean something and actually relate to how they're doing internally. All right, so now I want to talk for a second about how we actually might go about collecting data on subjective well-being. There are two main methods. So method number one is to use a very broad-based national survey. There are two main versions of this. The GSS, the General Social Survey, which is administered in the United States, and the British Household Panel Survey, administered in Great Britain. Those two surveys, which are sent to thousands of people every year, pose enormous battery of questions, hundreds of questions. And among them, they include this question there. All things considered, how satisfied are you with how your life is going on a scale of 0 to 10? And because we're learning so much about these people's lives, we're collecting such rich data about them, in addition to this data about their well-being, this survey allows us to really try to discern what types of life effects will actually impact how a person says they're doing, what will impact their own perception of their life. OK, so that's one option. Um, here is another option. Another option is, was uh, created by a collaborator of mine, Matthew Killingsworth, back when he was a graduate student in psychology. He has come up with an app, a smartphone app, called Track Your Happiness. Here's a shot of the Track Your Happiness app. And the way this works, you load it onto your smartphone, and every so often it will ping you, and it will ask you these questions here. How do you feel right now? How happy are you? And what are you doing right now? And so. Unlike the general social survey, we're not collecting huge amounts of broad-based data about everything going on in a person's life, but this does allow the collection of very particularized, discretized data about exactly what types of life experiences might cause someone's level of happiness in that particular moment to go up or down. The quid pro quo of this app is that if you download it, it will, in exchange for the data that you're providing to Killingsworth, um, it will print out reports for you, know, display. It will display reports for you about all the various things you do in your life and whether they make you happy or unhappy. So in theory, you can try to focus your attention on the things that make you happy and avoid the things that make you unhappy. I did this, and what it spit out is that the thing that makes me happiest is giving lectures about happiness. So here, <laughs> here I am today. There are some options in the middle, but these are sort of the main ways of thinking about these types of questions. Okay, so what have we learned from all of this psychological um, examination of happiness? Well, we've learned a lot about what makes people happy or unhappy. Much of it is not especially shocking. Some things that make people happy. Having dinner with friends. Sitting at home and watching television. Money makes people happy. But much less than you might think. The relationship between money and happiness is pretty weak and gradual. Above a threshold, once, you've, once you're making more than forty dollars or $50,000 a year, it takes a lot of money to have a really appreciable effect on your happiness above that. So I think a lot of people think of the happiness literature as sort of a guide to self-help. We're going to learn things about what makes us happier, and now we can go and live happier lives. And there are lots of popular books about it from that perspective. That's not my project, although not that I think that that sort of way of looking at it is not useful. Things that make people unhappy. Again, maybe not surprising. Driving in traffic makes people unhappy. <laughs> working makes people unhappy. Also, not working makes people unhappy. <laughs> Unemployment is very bad for happiness, even once you control for income, because there's something that's sort of debilitating or depressing about the fact of being unemployed and not having a job if you want one. More importantly, this research has revealed two sort of very general important facts about individuals and how they respond to the world around them. The first is adaptation. 
we are very adaptable. We are very quick to adapt to things that might make us happier or less happy, which is to say something comes along that makes us a lot happier, like we get a raise. Initially, a nice bump to our happiness, pretty quickly that advantage dissipates and we're back nearly where we were. Or something comes along that makes us less happy, an injury, an illness, etc. Initially, that causes some harm to somebody's happiness, but eventually they get back to where they were. Um, we adapt, we're capable of adapting at least to some extent to nearly everything out there with a few pretty important exceptions actually. Unemployment is one of them. It's pretty hard to adapt to being unemployed. Certain types of illness and disease like chronic pain or ringing in the ears are also very hard to adapt to. And the theory there, we don't know for sure, but the theory there is that the adaptation process comes about because we're able to put something in the back of our minds and sort of forget about it. But if you're experiencing chronic pain, it's pretty hard to put that in the back of your mind. The other key finding is that people tend to make a lot of effective forecasting errors, which is to say they're bad at predicting or forecasting how they're going to feel about something, how that thing will affect their affect going forward. We're just not good at judging whether something is going to really make us happy or not. We can take a guess, but we're going to be wrong a lot of the time. So these two sort of general findings are going to be important for all of the cases I discussed in a second. All right. So my project is to take what we've learned about subjective well-being and apply it to law and policy. What does that tell us about how our laws should operate or do operate? What does this literature tell us about what the things that we should spend money on? So I want to discuss the three examples uh, that I just started with uh, in, in terms of three sorts of cases of how we should think about these three different areas of law. A lot of this work is done with these two collaborators, John Bronstein and Chris Bacafusco. Um, their pictures are going to be up for a few minutes here, so I hope that's okay with everybody. All right, so my first example is uh, from civil law, tort lawsuits. So go back to my auto accident example. An individual is injured in an auto accident, person sues for damages. At some point, the other side, which could be the individual driver but is often the insurance company, will make a settlement offer. As I said at the beginning, the rational choice economist would just say, maximize the value of the recovery. But there's a lot of evidence that people don't actually behave that way. They want a settlement that seems fair, and fairness depends on how much the person believes that they've been injured. Here's the key. How much people feel that they've been injured changes over time. As I said, people adapt to injury. They start out feeling as if things have gone very badly, but that doesn't always last. So here's sort of a schematic of this. So this is about a person. Imagine this is a graph of a person's well-being. On the y-axis, we have their subjective well-being, how happy they are. On the x-axis, time. They're moving from left to right across this graph. So here's this person. They're at some level of subjective well-being. They're proceeding along, and then all of a sudden, an accident occurs, and their subjective well-being drops substantially. Well, for a while, they're going to be pretty unhappy. But then after some time, they're going to start to adapt to their injury. People tend to adapt to even very serious injuries. Um, not completely, but partially. So this adaptation will take place over a period of time. The adaptation isn't going to be complete. Um, and eventually, the person will sort of resume life. Adaptation will end at some lower level of well-being than they began with before the accident, assuming they have an injury that persists but nonetheless better than where they were immediately after the accident. People tend to adapt 30 or 40% of the way to even major injuries, like the loss of the use of a limb, let's say. Um, and when I say adapt, I mean recapture 30 to 40% of their lost subjective well-being. They adapt something like 50 to 60% to more minor injuries than that, even if the, again, even if the injury itself persists and doesn't go away. Okay. 
So somewhere along there, there's going to be a settlement offer. And the key idea is that the individual who's been injured is going to be willing to settle for less after the adaptation has already occurred compared with how much they were willing to settle for before the adaptation occurs. So if the settlement offer occurs out here after adaptation has already taken place, it's more likely to be accepted, precisely because the person doesn't think they've been hurt as much, and so they're willing to take less money. There are lots of legal doctrines that can affect this. Doctrines about discovery or motions practice, which slow down the pace of trial, they push settlement negotiations further away from the point of the accident. In addition, strategic parties can take advantage of this. Let's say you have an insurance company that's a repeat player. If they understand this phenomenon, they can hold off on making settlement offers to plaintiffs until later in the game, waiting for that plaintiff to adapt. On the other hand, if you have an experienced plaintiff's attorney, the plaintiff's attorney can try to counter that as well. So there are a whole series of testable predictions that flow from this analysis. One, of course, settlement demands decrease over time. Two, rules of procedure that delay trial will increase the rate of settlement, make cases more likely to settle. Um, and three, and maybe most importantly, these effects will occur differentially for different types of injuries. As I said, there are some injuries that are adaptable, even very major injuries, but there are other conditions like chronic pain that are not. So if someone's injured in an accident and they are, maybe their back is hurt and they suffer chronic pain as a result, we would not predict that that person would adapt and thus their settlement demands would not go down and thus the likelihood that they'll reach settlement with the defendant is lower than it would be if that person had been injured in another type of accident. There are actually data on this and just to give you a sense of where this research is going, we're right now working on trying to test these hypotheses using that data. Okay, next example is criminal law. So I want to return to my second hypothetical, how do we design criminal punishments? Suppose we want to make the punishment for murder twice as bad as punishment for robbery. How do we go about doing that? We know that how the criminal experiences punishment matters a lot. That's why we don't put people in the writs in order to punish them. So maybe the right answer is that it, what it means to punish the murderer twice as much as the robber is that the murderer should experience twice as much punishment in terms of lost subjective well-being as the robber. Twice as much disutility. This is a really old idea. It goes back to Bentham. How do we measure disutility? Well, I'll tell you, the way to do it is not just saying that 20 years is worse than 10 years. It turns out that we actually know quite a lot about how people experience prison for the same reason we know quite a lot about how they experience everything else, which is that people have done surveys of prisoners and asked them these same questions. So how do people experience prison? Well, the first important finding is that people tend to adapt to prison. Prison starts out really bad, but it gets better over time, at least up to a point. That should make sense to everyone. That's sort of consistent with what we might think of as typical human experience. Whenever you are thrust into a new environment, the first couple of weeks or months in that new environment um, can be the hardest because you're not used to it, you're around new people, you haven't yet found your niche, and then after a while, after a couple of months or a couple of quarters, however you slice it, sometimes that experience can get better, you find your sort of social footing, you make social ties, etc., and your experience improves. True for prison and quasi-prison as well. <laughs> The second important finding is that people continue to feel the negative effects of having been incarcerated even after they are released from prison. Having been in prison creates all kinds of disadvantages for people that persist long after the period of incarceration is over. It's harder to get a job. 
Prison destroys relationships and makes it much harder to form relationships once you're out of prison. And often the person who's released is infected with uh, a whole slew of diseases, HIV, hepatitis C, uh, often mental health disorders, depression, anxiety disorders, and so on and so forth, all of which create long-term health problems. Many of these disadvantages have large effects on subjective well-being, on happiness, and many of them are very hard to adapt to. Even more importantly, all of these negative disadvantages attach after just a couple years in prison, two or three years. You don't need five or 10 or 20 years to have all of these negative uh, disadvantages attaching to the prisoner. And what that means is that when someone is released from prison, whether they've served five years or 20, their subjective well-being doesn't go right back to where it was before they went into prison in the first place. It's still well below that. They're still suffering a type of punishment from having been in prison. So I'm going to show you the same sort of chart with regard to someone in prison. So here is our individual. They're going along. Then they are convicted and sentenced and sent to prison. Initially, it's very bad. There's a period in which it's very bad. Then adaptation begins. Things get better only up to a point, then they're sort of back. This is steady state within prison. And then the, pr the prison term ends at some point, and the person is released, and their subjective well-being goes back up again, but not all the way to the point it was before they went into prison. OK, so this has very significant legal ramifications. The first and most important of which is that 20 years in prison is not twice as bad as 10 years. It's not nearly twice as bad. 10 years is not twice as bad as five years, and so on and so forth. So let's imagine that this is a graph of someone who's been in prison for 20 years. I'm going to show you what it looks like for someone who's been in prison for only 10 years, who gets out halfway through that period. So here's our individual, the, the, the line in blue. Let's suppose the, blue, the person in blue is released at the 10-year mark halfway through, and then they're out of prison. How much more punishment, how much more disutility has our person who was sentenced to 10 years suffered? Just this little blue rectangle there. That's it. That's the extra disutility that they suffered above and beyond what the person who was sentenced to 20 years has suffered. What have they suffered in common? All of this. All of that gray shaded area and a little more in the triangle that I couldn't quite reach. Um, <laughs> so what, they have in what these two people have in common dramatically outweighs what they do not have in common, despite the fact that one was sentenced to prison for twice as long as the other. So this means that our calibration of prison sentences is way off. If we think that sentencing someone to 20 years in prison is twice as bad as sentencing someone to 10 years, that's just wrong. And if that's what we've based our punishments around, we're way off. Prospective criminals may or may not realize this. Maybe the only people who realize it are people who have actually been to prison. But if they do, then our efforts to deter criminals by jacking up sentences are going to go off the rails. Because criminals will realize that long prison sentences just aren't that different than much shorter sentences. This can help explain recidivism to some degree. People get out of prison, and their opportunities are not nearly as great as they were before they were ever in prison. Their life experience has, uh, has worsened to a significant degree. And so they have much less to lose by reoffending and going back into prison. It can help explain why criminal defendants sometimes elect to go to trial rather than taking what appear to be favorable plea deals. Economists usually talk about this in terms of hyperbolic discounting. So let's say you tell the, you tell the criminal defendant, you know, you're looking at 20 years if you go to trial and lose, and you'll probably lose, but we'll let you plead to five years. And the defendant says, no, I'm not going to plead to five years. The economist might say, well, that person is just not thinking about the future very much. They're just focused on tomorrow, next week, next month, or maybe the first year. They're discounting everything to the moment very aggressively. Maybe 
Or maybe that prisoner, that, that criminal defendant is completely rational and they just understand that there isn't a big difference between five years in prison and 20 years in prison for the rest of their life going forward. It's actually going to, those two things are going to have very similar impacts on their happiness, so they might as well take the gamble and try to get zero. It can also help explain why the probability of detection is so much more powerful as a way of deterring people than raising the sentences. So anyone who's taken my basic crim law class, you know, uh, it's much better, if we want to deter people, much better to increase the likelihood that we're actually going to catch them and convict them and punish them than it is to just increase the sentence length. These two things don't trade off perfectly. That might be because increasing the sentence length only has a very marginal impact on how people actually experience prison. Whereas increasing the chance that they're convicted at all, the change from never having to go to prison to having to go to prison even for a shorter period of time, that's very, very significant. The bottom line is that our criminal punishments just aren't having the effects that we think they will. So what can we do about this? Well, it's hard to solve the adaptation problem. We can make prison worse. We can make it harder to adapt to. We can move everyone around from prison to prison so they never get comfortable in their current environment. Uh, that seems excessively costly and excessively harsh to me. A more promising target is probably the effects of prison after release. The goal would be to make, prison, to make life after prison better and make it easier for released prisoners to get jobs, to form relationships, to maintain their health, and so forth. So we could think about investing in job training and education while in prison. We could think about imprisoning people closer to their family and friends. Right now, the law says that everyone has to be imprisoned within 500 miles of their family. 500 miles can be a prohibitively long distance for a lot of people. We could think about shortening that. We could think about trying to improve conditions within prison, less solitary confinement, greater safety for prisoners, so they don't all leave prison with mental health dis disorders, with physical illnesses, and so forth. There are obviously limits to what can be done, but there are probably also very substantial margins along which we could make progress. Okay, my third and final example. Suppose you work for the government and you're trying to decide whether the government should undertake a particular project or promulgate a particular regulation. The working example I'm going to start with is whether the EPA should ban asbestos, but it really could be anything. Should the government spend money to build a park? Should it invest in a new vaccine for disease? And so forth. How do you decide whether this project or this regulation is a good idea? The standard modern approach is to use cost-benefit analysis. Figure out the costs of the project in dollar terms. How much will it cost if the EPA forces everyone to stop using asbestos? Figure out the benefits of the project, again, in dollar terms. What is the value of all the lives we will save if fewer people get cancer because they're inhaling asbestos? And so forth. Cost-benefit analysis is a good thing. It is much better than no cost-benefit analysis. I've written a lot of papers, more than I care to count, defending cost-benefit analysis against a variety of alternative approaches. But it has real problems as well. The hardest part is to figure out what everything is worth in dollar terms. How much is a life worth? How much is building a public park worth? Most of these things are not traded in markets in the conventional sense. There is no real market price. So cost-benefit analysis uses two methods. The first method is what they call revealed preference studies. So in some cases, people are making implicit market trade-offs of some of these goods. So for instance, think about how you might go about trying to value uh, a human life. So it turns out that dangerous jobs usually pay higher wages than similar jobs that don't carry the same risk. Doing construction work on a skyscraper where you could fall to your death pays a little bit more than doing a similar type of job that doesn't have the same type of risk of life and limb. So what you could do is, 
if you're an economist, you could look at that wage differential and then you could figure out how dangerous that construction job is. So maybe the wage differential is uh, you know, $5 a year and maybe the risk of death from working on a skyscraper is one in one million. So that implies that the person has valued their life at $5 million, five divided by one in one million for that year. That's a standard mode of figuring out how much a life should be valued at. There are a lot of problems with this approach, but I'm going to name just one. How on earth is the employee supposed to know how dangerous the job is? It's not like they publish statistics that construction workers read about how many people have died uh, in those particular types of construction jobs and whether the risk is one in 100,000 or one in a million. If you're offered a construction job, you might know that there's some risk of death, but how are you going to know what the risk of death is? One in 10,000, one in 100,000, one in a million? These are all pretty small numbers. They're two orders of magnitude off. So not surprisingly, the results of these revealed preference studies, when you look at all the various studies that have been done, they often differ from each other by up to two orders of magnitude. Some studies put the value of a life at about $300,000. Other studies put the value of a life at more like $40 million. There's enormous variation because a lot of people are guessing. I'll just say very quickly, there are some things where there's no implicit market at all. And so economists use what are called stated preference studies. Those are just surveys. You want to know how much uh, people value a public park? You ask them, how much would you pay to have this public park built? There are some pretty big obvious problems with that as well. For one thing, nobody has to pay any actual money, so they can just sort of name a number that indicates how much they like parks in general. I really like parks, I'd pay a million bucks for a park, as long as you're not actually asking me to pay. Or, <laughs> I hate parks, I would pay zero, or you'd have to pay me if you want to build a park in my neighborhood. <laughs> the other thing about it, which is a little more sort of conceptual, is that this involves substantial effective forecasting errors. You're asking me to guess how much I'm going to enjoy this park, which involves guessing, for instance, how much I'm actually going to use it, how much I will ever get outside, uh, how much I'm ever going to venture into that park as opposed to these other options. And people might be really good at estimating those things in advance if they've never actually tried it out before. So what I want to suggest is that there's a better approach to all of this, which is to use the data on subjective well-being. So for starters, we have data on individual subjective well-being, and we have data on how much money they have, and so we can figure out the relationship between income and subjective well-being, even if we control for all these other factors. And we can use that to more accurately calculate the value of a life. The question is, how much would a person lose if they had to pay a little bit more money? How much subjective well-being would they sacrifice from paying a little more money? versus how much subjective well-being do they stand to lose if they die prematurely from inhaling asbestos and get cancer or something like that. And you can also use the same sort of data to figure out something like how much do people really value a public park. The Killingsworth Track Your Happiness app, which I described earlier, is really aimed at exactly those sorts of problems. You can watch on the app as the person is outside of the park, how much they are enjoying life, and then when they walk into the park, we can figure out how often they walk into the park and so on and so forth and get an actual measure as to how much people are really going to use these types of resources and how much they value them. And we're working on research along those lines. All right, so let me illustrate how this would work with an example drawn from an actual EPA regulation. So what we're trying to do is calculate the value of a statistical life. That's just the fancy term for how much a life is worth in a regulation. So this regulation that I'm going to show you was promulgated in 1989 uh, based on their 1985 numbers. In 1985, EPA put the value of a life at 4.5 million. Today it's 7.4 million. And so what I want to do is using data from subjective well-being data from the general social survey, try to figure out um, what that subjective well-being data tells us. And so here's what it tells us about the relationship between money and income. I apologize for, actually, you know what, I take it back. I do not apologize for the math coming up. Uh, okay, what it says is that happiness is proportional to 
0.11 times the natural log of income. Anyone who knows what a natural logarithm looks like, it sort of increases like this, relatively slowly up here. So increases in wealth have a positive effect on income, but a relatively small positive effect on income. So we're just going to try to use this data to answer exactly the same question that the EPA was using when it used revealed preference studies, which is, what's the trade-off such that giving up a small amount of money has the same effect on happiness as running some small risk of death? All right, so that requires calculating how much well-being people lose if they die prematurely. I'm going to do this in well-being units. This is our created unit to describe how much well-being somebody loses. One well-being unit is one point on this 10-point scale for one year. The average American rates his or her life satisfaction at 7.4 on a 10-point scale. Pretty good for us. Um, I'm going to assume that the average working-age person was going to uh, live for 30 more years uh, if they didn't die prematurely of cancer. I'm going to add in another half uh, well-being unit loss from the illness, the cancer itself. I can justify all these numbers if you want later on. And so the total well-being loss from dying early is 7.4 times the 30 years plus that half, which is 222.5 well-being units. Okay, so now I want to figure out what those are worth in dollar terms. So here's the median household income. We're assuming one in 100,000 risk of death. And the question is, what's the amount of money? What's the amount of money that you'd be willing to give up such that, you'd be, it's so that, such that it's equal to bearing that sort of risk of death? What's the amount of money you'd be willing to pay to eliminate that one in 100,000 risk? Exactly the same question that the revealed preference studies are trying to get at, just with very different data that doesn't rely on workers knowing that the risk of death is one in 100,000. It only relies on what people say themselves about how money impacts their own lives. Okay, so we're going to set the loss of happiness due to loss of income equal to the loss of happiness due to the one in 100,000 risk of the loss of life. All right, so this is, these are the equations behind it. I'm going to go through these quickly and not really talk about them. The answer is the amount of money that people should be willing to sacrifice to bear that 1 in 100,000 uh, risk, or I should say the amount of money that they would be willing to pay to avoid that 1 in 100,000 dollar risk is $1,130. And remember, we were talking about a 1 in 100,000 risk. So that implies that the value of a statistical life is actually more like $113 million, not the 4.5 or 7 that the EPA was using. Okay, so how does, this look, how does this look in terms of the regulation? So I'm just going to walk through the regulation using all of these different numbers. Here are the 1989 valuations. The EPA estimated the cost of getting rid of these. Uh, this is a regulation about asbestos pipe. Um, the EPA estimated the cost of getting rid of the asbestos pipe at $128 million thought there would be slightly fewer than 4.4 lives saved. Here's the value of each life. Here's the total value of the lives saved. And the overall net benefits of this regulation, negative $108 million. This regulation was struck down in a very famous case by the Fifth Circuit precisely for this reason. The Fifth Circuit looked at these numbers and said, this regulation was a mistake. It's not cost-benefit justified. And based on what the Fifth Circuit knew at the time, that was the right decision. That was the appropriate action. Here's how it looks with 2015 valuations. The only thing that's different is the value of life, but it doesn't change things very much. And here's what you get if you use the subjective well-being data. So again, the same numbers. The only thing that's different is the value of each life. And of course, now what this reveals is that actually, if we think about how much those lives were worth to those people in terms of the money that they were actually willing to trade to preserve their own lives, the overall net benefits are more in the range of $367 million. So this asbestos regulation, which was struck down in the early 90s, maybe it actually should have been allowed. Maybe it was actually doing far more good than harm. Okay. Um, Last permutation of this. We could use, 
we could use the well-being data to translate everything into dollars like we do here. Or we could go the other direction and translate everything into well-being units and run exactly the same analysis just using well-being units. We call this a well-being analysis. So basically what that means is now we have to take the compliance cost, the $128 million, and translate that into well-being units. I'm going to race through this pretty quickly. It's the same sort of mathematics. And the answer is that that compliance cost is worth about negative 249 well-being units. So now we can do the same cost-benefit analysis, now a well-being analysis using well-being units. Here's the cost in well-being units. Here are the lives saved, the value in well-being units of each life being saved, the value of the life saved overall, and the overall net benefits of the regulation, which again, as you see, is very positive. So either way, what we're doing is we're using these subjective well-being data, which as I've said, I think are more reliable for a variety of different reasons, to try to get a better handle on whether this regulation is actually going to improve people's lives or hurt it. I'm going to say two things about where this research is going now, and then I will be done. So the next frontier of this research is trying to use other types of data to understand subjective well-being, and then using that data to analyze other types of research questions. And so a lot of this work is pioneered by my collaborator, Elizabeth Beasley. There is Elizabeth. Um, What she is doing, what she and her co-authors are doing, is they are using Google searches to figure out whether people are happy or unhappy. Turns out, the things that people search for if they're happy are very different than the things that people search for if they are unhappy. This comes as a surprise to exactly nobody. If they're happy, they're searching for clubs to join and athletic activities to be part of and places to go to dinner. And if they're unhappy, they're often searching for psychiatrists or depression medication or any number of other things like that. So she took national data on happiness and national Google search data, which Google provides free of charge in volume to anyone who wants it. And she built a model that mapped one onto the other. So here's their model. The blue line is how people have, uh, how how, uh, happy people say their lives actually are. The red line is her model that tries to track that using Google search terms exactly. I, I, I could describe this chart in more detail, but I will not bother you with it right now. The point is the model is really pretty accurate at explaining how happy a group of people are based on what they're searching for on Google. The value of this is that we have so much information about Google search terms that you can get a really precise read on how happy people in a city are at a given moment, or a county, or a very small unit like that, um, in a way that we can't with the general social survey or even the Track Your Happiness app. So you can study things like, what does it mean for a small town if a factory closes? Or what does it mean for a city if the unemployment rate drops, or anything like that? Um, Lots of interesting information about how various policy changes or legal changes affect small units. The project that we're working on with Elizabeth Beasley is about health insurance. The Affordable Care Act allowed states to elect to expand Medicare access. Um, Some states did expand Medicare access, other states did not expand, and they did it at various times. So the rates at which people are covered by insurance starts to vary state by state quite dramatically as of 2014 when these Medicaid expansions took effect in some states but not in others. So that creates a sort of quasi-natural experiment. And it allows us to look at the effects of health insurance on subjective well-being on a national scale and in various particular localities. Um, there, there There are other important studies of this, including a very good study about Medicaid access in Oregon that found that people 
that increasing healthcare access does not have much of an effect on physical health, but it has a very substantial effect on emotional, mental well-being, on subjective happiness and well-being. And so what we're trying to do is see if we can uh, see the same effects and pick them up on a nationwide basis. We're still running the numbers on this, but the preliminary results suggest that having health insurance may actually have a very meaningful effect on a nationwide basis on subjective well-being. So, to conclude, the, the new literature on happiness can, in fact, be useful as a way of engaging in personal self-help, as a method of trying to find ways that will improve your own lives. But it can also be a lot more than that. It can be used as a tool to evaluate and design policy on a nationwide scale, and maybe even make a lot of people happier all at once. And that's what we're trying to do here. Thank you. So I believe we have time for questions. Yes? Um, if we get really good at tracking individual well-being units, um, with prison sentencing context, does it make sense for us to then sort of say, robbery should be punished with 400 WEUs, and make punishments individualized in that sense? Um, and if we do, are we OK with putting unhappy people in prison longer Okay, good. All right, so there's a lot embedded in there. So, um, so for starters, you know, I think it would make sense to say, you know, we want to we want to punish people who've committed X crime by a certain amount, and people who've committed this other crime by a different sort of amount, and we can measure that in well-being units. There's a question about whether we want to do that sort of on a broad scale across the board. Let's have the average person who's committed robbery be punished that amount, or the average person who's committed murder be punished this other amount, or if you want to actually try to individualize it to the person. I don't have a particularly strong feeling about that. I think it will be hard to individualize it very precisely, but I'm not sure there's necessarily anything wrong with that for the following reason, which is it's not as though happy and unhappy people will be serving longer terms. The question is not, you know, what's your natural state of happiness? The question is, what is the effect that prison will have on you? So it might be that being in prison makes the unhappy person, you know, three points less happy, and it makes the happy person three points less happy as well. The happy person started off better off, and they end up better off, but prison has the same effect on them, the same disutility on both people, in which case we'd say the punishment on those two people is the same. The two types of people who would actually be treated differently are the person who's really good at adapting to prison, the person who makes friends quickly and uh, learns to live in the prison environment very rapidly, versus the person for whom prison is really awful and is really a chore. And so if the question you'd ask me is, for the person for whom prison is really, truly terrible and who suffers more on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, do we think that that person maybe should have a shorter prison term? I think that that's plausibly yes. Plausibly the answer is yes, because we're getting all of the action we need. We are getting all of the punishment um, in a shorter span of time. There's no reason to keep that person locked up unnecessarily long. Adam. Uh, to what extent should we think of your project as behavior of law and economics, uh, behavior of law and economics of versus better measurement of utility? So my understanding, uh, the basic premise of the law and economics or I think rationally yep. Mm -hmm. Like your initial example about settlement. So we predict that you can take your uh, expected value from trial, but in practice people think what they think is 
fair or something like that. But a lot of what you're doing seems to be just measuring utility better and not saying that people are predictably irrational. Now, the uh, predicting the future hypothesis that you told us about is a way in which people are predictably rational. But a lot about adaptation or measurement as well is just saying the current tools for measuring utility could be improved by surveys. It seems like a very different. I agree with that. I mean, I think you've sort of you've you've uh, anticipated exactly what I was going to say, which is a lot of this is just uh, a better attempt to measure utility better. Which, you know, I don't have a lot invested in whether we define that as behavioral or not. Uh, it certainly is contrary to the major thrust of existing rational choice neoclassical economics. But you could just call it a better version of neoclassical economics if you wanted to. The important finding within this literature that I think is distinctively behavioral is the effective forecasting error. The fact that people are very bad at judging what will make them happy in the future and thus that their decisions, the decisions they make, are not necessarily rational and informed in the way that economists want us to think of them in the sense of the person is picking what they believe to be the best mechanism for making their life better or achieving whatever goal they have. But in fact, they are mischoosing and they are mischoosing in predictable sorts of ways um, across you know, essentially a ubiquitous range of, uh, of situations and contexts. So that, to my mind, is the big behavioral aspect of this. But that particular aspect pervades, uh, you know, it, I think it pervades essentially every area of law that this is applicable to. And so that's why, that's why I'm comfortable calling this behavioral sort of writ large. So th this is a question about the implications of adaptation. Right? So, so adaptation creates, um, means that the, the victim essentially has multiple selves, right, before the accident. Mm -hmm. um, and after the after adaptation and so forth, so it doesn't that doesn't really matter for for, for, for the exercise that you engaged in of predicting what settlement offer they'll mm -hmm. accept. But if you if normatively you're interested in how much should society deter the injurer, then what's the how do we measure the harm? Is it which which of the cells or the these multiple cells do we use to measure the, the harm? Well, I think that the harm is the sum of the multiple selves. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what's gained by, you know, the person goes through different periods in their life. I'm not sure if a substantial, if a substantial amount is gained by, by describing that as multiple selves or not. So the harm is, I'll just go back to the chart. Pardon the substantial clicking this will require. Uh, okay. All right, so I'll just, just using this slide, I mean, the harm that the person is suffering is everything that's shaded gray there, right? So you can call that the multiple selves of the person as they are put in prison, adapt, and then, and then leave. But whatever, whatever the case, we had an individual who was operating at one level of well-being, and then we engaged in a legal intervention that was applied to that individual, and their well-being dropped, and so they suffered some loss. And so I'd say if you were trying to gauge how much has that person been punished, or in the auto accident context, how much has the person been injured, the person has been injured, the entire shaded area, everything under the curve, so to speak. And it's the summation of that that's our proper measure of the injury that's occurred to them. Anna? So I have a question about the choice of subjective well-being as sort of a, a measure. Uh, I think one of the things we know, especially in the context of what we know about adaptation, is that like, people uh, can look subjectively the same. We have uh, subjective Mm -hmm. when they are experiencing very objectively different life conditions. Sure. Um, one of the things you might imagine is that people, for example, who grew up living in poverty uh, adapt to having potentially similar levels of subject to happiness, even as on objective scales like lifespan, um, health outcomes, 
Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a really important question, um, and it really sort of puts to the test how much I or anyone else wants to be invested in this type of a measure of how well someone's life is going. If we saw someone living in extreme poverty who was nonetheless very happy, would we really be willing to say, well, that person's life is going pretty well. Maybe we shouldn't disturb them. We should just leave them as they are. And what would be all the terrible negative consequences that would flow from that sort of attitude? You know, um, I guess I want to say that my intuitive answer is probably that's not the right way to think about that problem, that we ought to intervene in that person's life. But I guess the thing I really want to say is that the question is hard because it requires the person answering it to assume something that is actually contradicted by every shred of evidence that we have. In fact, people who live in extreme poverty, people who live under oppressive, terrible conditions are, generally speaking, much, much, much less happy than people who live in relative wealth and happiness. Like I said, you know, when I talked about income, Income doesn't make a large difference when you're above forty or fifty thousand dollars a year, but when you're living close to the poverty line, income makes an enormous difference on your happiness. It has incredibly powerful effects because you're talking about being able to afford or not afford basic types of necessities, um, and that's true for people who live in um, oppressive circumstances in other countries, for people in marginalized social groups who are living in oppression, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I think that the, the moral dilemma that you're describing. Uh, it, it's, it just doesn't, it, it would be, it's alleviated to a large degree by the fact that the, what we know of how people experience their lives just doesn't sort of bear that out very much. To the, to, the great, to the largest extent that I can sort of describe, people really do. When you think that someone is suffering, they probably are suffering. And cases, anecdotes about the person who's living in, in poverty and oppression but is nonetheless very happy, those are just anecdotes. The vast majority of the data would say that person is actually living a bad life, they have very low subjective well-being, and we ought to do something immediately to intervene in their lives and help them and try to improve their lives. Yes, Dave. Um, have you looked at the change in subjective well-being to the victim and to society when you see somebody get sentenced to a certain no, I don't think I've I've seen I don't think I've seen any data on that whatsoever. That's an interesting question. Um, my suspicion would be that this is the sort of thing to which people adapt very quickly. That whatever satisfaction someone feels from having closure to the case or uh, from watching the perpetrator of a crime be punished is pretty fleeting, and that person pretty quickly goes back to regular life. But I have not seen data on that, and that would be interesting. I mean, that would be sort of yet another element we'd want to add into our whole sort of criminal punishment calculus. Um, we'd also want to know whether the person feels differently if the sentence is five years versus 10 years versus 20 years. It might be that past a certain point of sentence length, the impact on the victim's well-being is identical as well. But those would be interesting questions to study. Yes? Um, so I've heard recently that uh, I think it's Britain uh, created a new position of uh, Minister of Happiness. Uh, and I think a number of countries, maybe including Britain, uh, now track uh, gross domestic happiness. Uh, so I'm curious to hear, you know, do we need a position like that in the US? Uh, and what are these indices tracking exactly? And then, uh, what do you think about their, uh, their, their merit? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is sort of, when it comes to public policy and happiness, this is what gets the headlines. You know, Bhutan calculates gross national happiness. Um, 
uh, went back when he was president of France, Nicolas Sarkozy made a big speech about how we should stop trying to judge France by its GDP growth, but actually judge it by its levels of happiness instead. I actually think that these are some of the least useful um, uh, applications of happiness. I don't know what it tells us uh, to measure a country's gross national happiness over time because it doesn't tell us anything about the inputs into that level of happiness, what's actually making people better off or worse off. Um, you know, it's like trying to figure out whether we ought to, um, you know, it's like, well, let's look at the U.S. GDP and we'll use U.S. GDP to tell us whether we ought to, um, you know, raise the minimum wage in New York from $11 to $12 or something. It's not useful in a policy sense. It's just a sort of tracking number. So I would be in favor of having a minister of happiness, but only if that person were engaged in actual sort of subjective well-being based policy analysis of particular laws and regulations. Tracking gross national happiness, it's cute for headlines, but I don't think it's good for much else than that. Yes. Uh, no, I, I would not say that that's the case. I think that that I think that that states it a little bit too strongly. You know, that would be true if everyone adapted to everything perfectly, such that they recovered. You know, any change in their happiness, they recovered it. But that's not true for lots of different things. You know, people don't they adapt somewhat to prison, but they don't adapt completely. They adapt somewhat if they're injured, but they don't adapt completely. You know, things that make people unhappy. So your example was somebody moves to a new city. So like, let's just take somebody has a job in downtown Chicago. One of you is working at a law firm in downtown Chicago and you move out to Naperville to have you know bigger house and yard and better schools or something like that the trouble is you now have to drive an hour in traffic every day you know the question of whether you adapt or not is irrelevant you have to drive an hour every day in that terrible traffic that's going to keep happening and that's going to diminish your happiness very substantially so there are lots of decisions that people can make that will have long-term effects on happiness um, and there are lots of things we can impose on people that will have long-term effects on happiness as well I guess my point is just those effects are not necessarily always what we would predict, and they don't always necessarily persist to the same degree that we would predict they persist. Yes? If the Fed is seen to be very accurate and good at predicting happiness now, and very poor at predicting forecasting happiness, mm-hmm. what if I suggest that there's like maybe at least two types of happiness, kind of this instant shallow happiness which we can measure well, and kind of a deeper contentness? I wonder if you looked at what yeah, this is a good, important question. And I think, um, you know, one thing that's important about it is it highlights the difference in two, the two main measures of happiness that I talked about. So when people are asked once a year in the general social survey, how is your life, go- how is your life going for you, all things considered? That, I think, is trying to get at this sort of all things considered deeper sense of contentment or whatever that you're describing. My fear of it is that it's also leading people to make judgments about their lives rather than actually reporting how happy they are. So imagine a person who gets a promotion in a given year, which gives them a lot more responsibility but also creates a lot of anxiety. I could easily imagine that person answering the general social survey and saying, you know, I am a lot happier because they feel like they ought to be, given that they got a promotion, even if, in fact, their life has been worse that year because of the anxiety that was applied to them. Um, the other, you know, the, the Killingsworth track your happiness measure that we're using for some of these, these studies, 
that's much more of sort of the moment by moment. There is a risk that all you're doing is capturing what's going on in that moment um, and that it might be shallower. But then again, you know, I mean, this is a, this is a topic we could have a big uh, philosophical debate about. But I guess I would just say, you know, life is kind of just a series of moments. And if you add up a lot of series of moments, <laughs> That, you know, that, that maybe that's the formula for a pretty content life. So I think that there are, I, I, I think the point you're making is exactly right, but I think that there are some virtues to the sort of precision of moment by moment as opposed to the judgment of the long run. So the moment of the like, <laughs> lecture has come to an end, uh, although it has made us all very happy. Uh, please join me in thanking Professor Mazur. Thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.